It's 18, six, 16 to 40. <clears throat> 1 King 18:16 to 40. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you trouble, troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah, Elijah said, replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the, the, followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare another bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on, my, on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given to them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response, no answer. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no answer. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord has, had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seeds. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trenches. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I'm your servant and you have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you are Lord, are God, that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, 
fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah brought them down to Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. Morning, everyone. Thank you, Carla, for reading that. You did well with all the, the names uh, and the weird, weird bits and the weird words. Um, I'm Etienne, part of Leadership Pathway, and uh, today I get to take you through the, as Simon mentioned, the second part of a sermon that we essentially started last week. I dearly hope that you would be able to make sense of it this week. If you weren't here last week, I think you will. Uh, and I might send a, oh, just a signal, I suppose. This is um, slightly longer than usual sermon. There's just a lot in there to deal with, hopefully worth your while. So do take deep breaths and do grab a coffee if you need it. Uh, halfway through, feel free to uh, do what you need to to stay tuned in. I'll do my best, but you do what you need to do. <laughs> um, we're in a place called Samaria. There's a terrible drought, a famine. People are dying, animals are dying because this prophet Elijah last week came to Ahab, who's a king. He's a... I don't want to paint him out as too bad a person because I'm going to relate us to him soon, but he's, a, he's, not, a, he's not a good guy. Uh, he's, not, he's certainly not after what God wants for him. Uh, and Elijah says it's going to not rain here until I say so on behalf of God. It'll rain when God says it's going to rain. And the tension is between who's the real God, who, is, who controls things here. This God called Baal, who Ahab and his wife Jezebel brought in and stamped on Israel and said, you must worship Baal. This is the way you should think. This is the way you should live. Or is it God who Elijah represents? That's the question. Okay, now that's where we start the story today. Obadiah, just park him for now. He was last week. Went to meet Ahab, told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel, Ahab, classic Ahab? It's not my fault. It's not what I've done. I'm not the one responsible for the misery, the brokenness, the mess that I and all these people who I lead sit in. It's someone else's fault. Is that you, Elijah, you troubler of Israel? Ivan made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your father's family have, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Elijah's charge, I put it to you, is very simple. Here's what he says to Ahab. Ahab, you have been nowhere near serious enough about what it means 
to be a child of God, to worship God, to belong to God, (laughs) to follow God. You see, Ahab was a guy that when what it meant to belong to God and to worship God and to live for God, when, it, when that came to the point of hurt, when that came to the point of great cost, Ahab shied away. Ahab was the guy who said, and you remember last week, you know, I want to marry this girl, Jezebel. I want to, through her and the allegiances I'm going to form, this is all against what God wanted for him. I want to, build my wealth, build my power, build my life, build it the way I want it to be, the cost of belonging to God, following, to, following God, living for God, was something that for Ahab was just too much. He was nowhere near serious enough about it. And that's what Elijah tells him straight up. Here's the thing. In many ways, I think it's often not all that different for us. Here's a quote from a Christian author. There are hundreds of thousands of people in our country who call themselves Christians because they believe the Christian life is about admiring Christ's example, not realizing it's a call to follow it. If they really understood this, the numbers would drop drastically. The New Testament could not be clearer. We are not just to believe his crucifixion. We are called to be crucified with Christ. There are millions of men and women who have been taught that they can become Christians and it would cost them nothing. And they believe it. They believe it. Last week we spoke about how hard it is to be a Christian in our environment today and that's all true. We likened our culture to the Jezebel culture that was shaped in Israel and we said, you know, maybe that's why the church is doing it so tough. Today I want to put it to you. The reason the church in our country and in the Western world is in such a tragic state, it's in a tragic state, it really is. The reason it's in such a state has nothing in some ways to do with the Jezebel culture and what's being done to us. No, I think the overwhelming reason the church is in such a deplorable state is because somewhere along the line we started to believe the lie. The lie that I can be a Christian and it is not going to cost me everything. My commitment to Jesus is going to have to be Total and exclusive. And and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Those who will be with Jesus in the end, those who will say, I knew you 
will be those who calculated that cost, who understood it. Ahab did not. And the question for us here, and, and I, this is serious, I, I'm perfectly aware of that, and I assure you that I'm on the receiving end today of this teaching as much as anyone else. The cost is great. The question you may ask you this is, does, it, does that sound invasive? Does it sound disturbing, fanatical, extreme, obsessive? It is. Christianity is exclusive. It's total. It's all-encompassing. God's worship is total and it's exclusive. That is the Christian life. That is the charge that I believe Elijah is bringing to Ahab. But now here's the question that you're going to ask that Ahab asked I believe even Obadiah asked that last week. Why would I do that? <laughs> Why would I commit myself, my life, to a thought or a worldview or whatever word you want to put to it, an ideology, an idea that I will so deny myself for, for, for a God, for a, a different way of life? Why, Why would I do that? Now, this is the language that our culture would use of religious extremism. I mean, it is a bit funny that what's considered religious extremism today was what was just considered standard Christianity, uh, certainly in the New Testament. But that's the question. Why would I do that? Why would I shape my life in such a way in all facets of it? And I, I believe God, knowing that's what's on our hearts, what's on our minds, what was on... Israel's hearts and minds graciously gives us an answer. The answer to why we would do that takes us to this place called Mount Carmel, where this epic showdown between God and Baal is going to take place. You've, read, you've heard the story as Carla read it. You know, the deal is more or less. Take two bulls, we'll put it on an altar, and whichever God sends fire, that's the real God. That's, that's the one. I'm going to suggest to you that this Mount Carmel showdown gives you and me two reasons. Two reasons why it's worth following God so exclusively. Okay, let's go. Number one. And Carmel shows us God alone is the sovereign ruler over all things. My kids are little. To say to them what a sovereign ruler is, they won't understand. At their language, we go, you've got to listen to dad and to mum. You know what? Um, thanks to Carla and growing kids God's way. Uh, you've got to listen to us because we're the boss. We're the boss. That's it. You know, in some way, to say God is the sovereign ruler over all things is to say God is the, he's the boss. And Carl shows us that in, in, in four ways. I'll deal with them quite quickly and apply them to us. Number one, you know, God 
He's not bound to a place. Significant that this showdown is taking place in Carmel. You know what Carmel was? Carmel was Baal's home territory. That's where he was worshipped. That's where he was uh, sacrificed to, where all this 450 prophets mainly operated. It's, uh, it's, it's the Berlin of Baal territory. You'd expect that if God was going to thump him, he'd do it in Jerusalem, in the temple where, where he lived, where he worked. Not God. God says, if I'm going to show down, I'm going to show down on Carmel. I'll come to you. I'll do it on your home ground. Isn't it staggering today that the places where Christianity is spreading the fastest, where the most people are committing their lives recklessly to live exclusively for Jesus, perhaps way more than we will ever realize or have to do ourselves, is in places where Baal is worshipped most fiercely. (laughs) It's in China. It's in Sri Lanka. You know what God's saying to us? I'm not bound. I will show you who I am and my authority and my sovereignty and my rulership over all places by doing what I want to do, where I want to do it, no matter who's oppressing me, no matter how heavily. This is God. You've seen it in your own life. You've encountered his power, his strength in places where you least expected it. God is not bound by a place. He's not bound to a building. He's not bound to this place. He can do what he wants, where he wants. Numbers are of no consequence to God. You know the uh, numbers, 450 of Baal's prophets, and Elijah's the only one there that day. There are the hundred that uh, Obadiah has uh, hidden, but... um, Presumably, Elijah's the only one who's happy to go public to Mount Carmel and say, look, it'll be me and the 450. If you're a betting man, didn't look good that day for Elijah. If, you're a, if, if you follow polls, didn't look good that day for God. Since when the number, numbers matter for God. It makes me think how often I refrain from certain things because we think we do not have the numbers. We're too small. We're too few. It's just me. There's no others. God is sovereign. God does not need numbers. God can do what he wants with one. Number three, God doesn't need human activity. Run your eyes over the screen. We get these Baal prophets. Look at the flurry of activity, what they do. They pray, they yell, they induce, they plead, they have their rituals, they have their, 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 whatever they need to say, their incantations or what it might be. They shout louder, louder, and eventually this ugliness of what, who they were, what they did was coming out in that they slashed themselves with swords. Imagine that. The blood flowed and still Nothing. Nothing. Until we read at midday or or sometime thereabout, Elijah comes forward at the time of sacrifice 
the prophet, Elijah, comes forward. I want you to imagine if you were there, what this would have been like. You've just seen this 450 people singing, chanting, picking up dust, slashing themselves with swords. Surely that would have created a certain sense of tension. Surely you would have, I don't know if you watch the great epic movies, you know, Gladiator or any of the others, where you step in at some point that movie reaches that critical focal point where you're just so glued and it's, you can hear a pin drop in your own thoughts. I think that was what this was like. When it came to Elijah's turn to do what he needs to do. <laughs> what did he do? All this anticipation building to this climax, what does he do? <laughs> Praise. Praise. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you're God in Israel. I'm your servant. I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. These people will know that you are Lord, you're God, and you're turning their hearts back again. That's it. <laughs> How often do we think we, if we want God to do something, we need to be a bit like these prophets? Not only if we do all these things, these programs, we preach these kind of sermons, if we preach it that way, if we sing these types of songs, these courses, go to this group, that group, have this ministry, that ministry, this, that, 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 that. <laughs> Prophet Elijah prayed. You know, God, God does not need human activity. He prefers it. He uses it. Yes. But he doesn't depend on it. He doesn't need it. Number four, last one. Handicaps, no obstacle for God. We've read it. Water. So much water, Elijah pours over this altar, and yet God lights that fire. How often do we stop from doing things because we feel that the handicaps that we have are insurmountable for God? I'm not good enough uh, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. We, we're handicapped. <laughs> so we stop. We just don't even try. Handicaps, no obstacle for God. Okay. That's it. God, why would I surrender my life to him completely? Why is it worth it to follow him exclusively? Because he's sovereign. Because he's the ruler of all things. He's the boss. That's the first thing that Carmel shows us. And I tell you what, as I now move on, as awesome as that is, to me, it gets better. So far, the only reason we have in this, and it's all truth, is that you should worship God because God is powerful. He's strong. He is mighty. He is sovereign. That's why you should give and surrender your whole life to him. But that alone is never why God wants his people to worship him. It gets better. Let me give you the second reason. Not only is God sovereign, God is a gracious, gracious restorer. 
Then Elijah said to all the people, when it's his turn to sacrifice, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruin. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. Now the truth is, in their sin, in Satan's relentless lying to them, Israel, as God's child, has become so confused, so lost, so stuck that they, as a people, were, were ruined in pieces. They, they literally, in their moral confusion, lay shattered on the ground. They looked, and, and you, you can't really see it because it's too low, but this is kind of what I tried to illustrate here with this altar that, that is shattered. It's, it's broken. I ask you today to think how many lives in our country look like this? Shattered. Utterly broken. Stuck. Lost. Confused. To the point of death. How many families look like this? How many churches look like this. You know, the truth is that this is kind of the state of us. This, this, this is what we look like, this ruined altar that lies there on the ground. And so therefore what happens next is incredibly stunning. You know what Elijah does? He, he, he stands there after he issues this incredible tender-hearted invitation. He says, come to me. And then in full view of all those there, he takes the stones, you know. He picks them up. There's 12 of them. And he starts rebuilding this altar of the Lord. One by one, he takes it. And then when he's finished, he looks at them and he says to them, your name shall be Israel. This is who you are. You're a built and put together people by God himself. And, and you know what, church, today he says the same thing to us. I want you to take it into your mind. You may say to me, my life is so broken, so shattered, it's in pieces. This is what God does. He takes it, he takes those pieces, and one by one, uh, he puts you together. God is a gracious Restorer. A surrendered life to Jesus completely, totally, exclusively is a life that is being rebuilt by Jesus. And there's nothing on offer in this world, nowhere, that's going to rebuild you as gloriously, as put together as, as Jesus. Nowhere will you find your purpose, your true identity, as strongly, as firmly as you are going to in Jesus Christ. Is your life broken this morning? 
has the seriousness of your commitment and love for Jesus grown cold? Then come here to me, is what Jesus is saying to you. Come. All you who are weary, all you who are burdened, all you who lay shattered, confused, broken, even if it's your own fault, doesn't matter how far you failed, come here. Let me take those stones. Let me put you together. Let me rebuild you. <laughs> God is the boss. God is sovereign. He is in that alone worthy to be followed. But more than that, God is gracious. He's a rebuilder. He's a restorer. He's a fixer. He's a healer. And nothing is going to fix you and heal you as good as he can. That is the gospel. It's the truth. And that is why it's super worth it to follow him. Give him all of you. Hold nothing back. And let me finish this. The passage finishes with kind of this. The fire of the Lord fell, burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he's God. The Lord, he is God. The fire of the Lord fell. Interestingly, this is not the first time it happened. This is the third time this happens in the Bible. First time, stay with me quickly, it happens in Leviticus. Fire came down from Yahweh's presence, consumed the burnt offering and the fat pieces on the altar, and the people saw and shouted and fell on their faces. Leviticus 9, verse 24. If you're a Christian, if you know your biblical history, this is very early on in the, in the people of God's story. Then again, after the temple is built, uh, Solomon builds this temple, then he prays in Chronicles, he prays a prayer. The result is fire came down from heaven, heaven consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of Yahweh filled the house in Chronicles, halfway through the story. And then it finishes, well, it doesn't finish, the third time brings us to Mount Carmel. This sort of a thing happens again. The prophet prays, fire of the Lord fell, burns up this sacrifice. Every time this happens, the result is that because of a sacrifice that was consumed, God accepts his people. Every time. Leviticus, Chronicles, here on Mount Carmel, and all three of them point us to one thing. The ultimate altar, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate time when the ultimate fire fell on Golgotha, so that God accepts his people. We will not see one of these again because it was done. <laughs> sacrifice was made, the acceptance was brought. The next time the fire is going to fall, it's going to be on those who do not accept Christ. That's the truth. That's the gospel. And so the invitation today, based on the altar of the cross, is again this. Come. Come if you haven't. Come to let your life be rebuilt for you to be restored as a church. Let us constantly and continually come.
Come to Jesus. Come in prayer. Come and think what it is that he wants to do in us and let us proceed. Let us live our lives fully, recklessly abandoned to our Lord. He is sovereign. He is gracious. He's worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You are a God like this. I pray for each of us. I ask that wherever we are at in our relationship with you, that today would be a day where we again would say, yeah, we want to take the next step. We want you to do the next thing. Sometimes we don't even know what that is. But we can certainly just do what your word invites us this morning. Just come to you and pray a simple prayer. Do the next thing in me that you want to do. (laughs) Make the next change in my life that you want to make. Grow me into the next phase of maturity that you want me to grow. I pray for those who have not put their faith in Christ. I ask that today would be the day where a simple prayer gets prayed, Lord, here I am. I give you my heart. This we ask in Jesus' name alone. Amen. All right. Thank you, music team.